Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. If you listen to public radio, and I get the sense that you do, you recognize Chris Thiele's name. He was a host of Live From Here. And if you're like me, you knew him from at least one of his gazillion other music projects, like his band Punch Brothers. I've been following his work for over 10 years, simultaneously singing my heart out to his recordings while being totally mind-boggled at his mandolin playing. It's a state he puts most of his fans in, so you can imagine how freaking thrilled I was to interview him live on stage at the Jorgensen Center for the Performing Arts at Yukon Stores last month, and then again via Zoom from my dining room table. So today, it's just me and Chris Thiele and a whole lot of things I've always wanted to ask him. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. There are a lot of ways you may recognize Chris Thiele's name. Considering my audience here, you may remember him from the public radio show Live From Here. Or you've listened to him since he was eight years old, while he was growing up playing in the band Nickel Creek. Maybe you heard his name in 2012, when he won a half-million-dollar MacArthur Genius Grant. Or if you're like me, you heard his voice through his band Punch Brothers. Now, whether you've heard every pluck of his mandolin, or if you're just tuning in and you're wondering how to spell Thiele, it's T-H-I-L-E, this entire episode is just me and Chris and a bunch of things I always wanted to ask him. To celebrate his new solo album, Lay Songs, which comes out on June 4th, Chris played a show at Jorgensen Center for the Performing Arts and Stores last month. I moderated that conversation. Now, this being COVID time, it was being live-streamed to several hundred people in 48 states and four countries, and when I joined him on stage after his set, if it were a full house, you would have heard, you know, hearty chuckles and thunderous applause during our interview, but for now, you're going to have to vividly imagine it. When we situated ourselves 12 feet apart, I posited a question to him from that live stream. Audience member Joel asked, if you could play only two songs for the rest of your life, one that you wrote and one that you didn't, which songs would they be? Uh, um, oh my God. I, I don't the thing know is, there's no fact checking any of this. You know, we're not going to like right. revisit this in a couple of years. I mean, it could yeah, that's true. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 that is oscillating all the time, um, which just <laughs> so tonight, scares me. Scares on the Jorgensen so stage, much. one that I wrote and one. I mean, let's just go with long ones. <laughs> long ones. Okay, so the longest thing that I've written that I really like is called Familiarity. It's a Punch Brothers song. Yep. Uh, so I feel like that would give me, you know, there's a lot, there's some variety in that one. So when you I go, got, it's, um, again, Kyle. again, 
it, it, it's yeah. on again. That's true. It would also be very meta. <laughs> right. The right. lyric would be super meta in the context of playing it and mm. only it and this one other right. thing for the rest of my life. So I think, yeah, familiarity, familiarity. breeds contempt. <laughs> and then maybe another real long thing like, like box D minor Chacon or something like sure. that. You know where I could just sit there and vibe out on that for 13 minutes and then repeat. So I'm only repeating after every 26 minutes or so with those two songs. Bach here at Jorgensen. Well, it was one of the last times I saw you here, uh, and you played some for us tonight. What is it about Bach? Mm. He, he, it's such a uh, oh boy. There's it's like a calibration device or something almost. It's like True North mm. for so many musicians that that we we. I mean, there's something almost spiritual about Bach as well. Um, or, or religious about, he's almost like a religion, a musical religion of sorts, um, which, you know, ironic in that he, he said that all music should be, should be written for the glory of God. Uh, although he would then go and do something like write the well-tempered clavier, which would be like, actually, this is to the glory of the well-tempered clavier. Like, okay. let's explore this thing that I, uh, that I came up with, this tuning. Or maybe he didn't come up with it, but he, he kind of did it better than it had been done before. Um, so I think that there's, with Bach, it was such an, a comprehensive musical life, so so comprehensive. He he was a master. Uh, obviously, you know we think of the counterpoint, maybe maybe before we think of anything else. But dude was one of the all time great melodists as well. And and then structurally, the way that he would t he could take a, a looping, you know, in essence like an EDM style looping electronic dan dance music style looping bass line and spin it for 13 minutes into the D minor Chaconne, which is one of the greatest pieces of music ever written. Um, you know, a piece that people like Brahms would go in there and go like, okay, what if it had, he wrote like a, a one hand version of the Chaconne for piano and you know, composers were forever. I think Schumann might've written a one with a bass line or I, I'm trying to remember who did that. But um, when you're talking to musicians, you're getting to know a musician and you start really getting in there late night and you you know you start doing something stupid like who are the top five greatest musicians of all time? It's like the arguments start after number one. They all they, it's like Bach and then who? It's like obviously Bach is bo that's boring. That's number one. That's number one. <laughs> we can agree with it. Who are the who are two through five? And that's when you get some. See that makes me think. As I was watching you tonight, I I had this flash in my mind. What if Chris Thiele could perform for Bach? <laughs> He How would you like that? I wouldn't you know, know if there's an afterlife or something. I would have a heart attack. No, I couldn't do it. I don't do you think, think I he'd, do I mean, it. let's be real here. You're, you're pretty good at this stuff. Do you think he'd be impressed? No. No? <laughs> like, get this guy out of my No, I don't. I don't. I really don't. I mean, I would love, I, I, you know what I would give it? I, I, since I was a little boy, there has never been too much attention for me. That's not, it's never happened once where I was like, okay, easy on the attention, y'all. <laughs> So I would give it a try. I bet you I, you would have never seen someone's hands shake so much. Um, 
Because it's like, as much as I love, that's another reason I think I keep going to Bach is that it's, it is outside of my, my raisin. <laughs> it's yeah. above my raisin. Um, in that, in that I grew up, you know, my, my vocabulary comes from British folk Isles fiddle tune music. Like that's kind of, um, such a huge part of what I do. You know, so the, the Titan from Leipzig, you know, is, is just kind of always, again, it's just this like, I'm not worthy. I'm going to sure. go over here and try to play the C major fugue for a little while, you know, and I still haven't happens. gotten around to performing that one, uh, even for non-Bach performing, mm -hmm. <laughs> performing the C major fugue. Is, I is, wonder, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, you're, you're Another good. thing, and I, I know I'm not alone when I, when I'm a big fan of the work you've done. And when I hear you play Bach, and, and I don't mean to compare you directly, I'm just, I feel like your Venn diagrams overlap in the, in the sense that there's this access in your brain to some sort of construction of a song and commitment to a story that you're telling that mm. somehow transports all these people over time and, and, and makes us sort of forget how to breathe and what we're doing here and that we have feet, you know, like, oh. but do you, and it I was guess then I, that he decided that Kion would write his next book. <laughs> I'll at least do your audiobook. But I, I wonder if when you're composing a song, do you feel a, a closeness with Bach and people who've come before you and done Great, mm. powerful things. Well, not, yeah, not Bach specifically, but absolutely kind of everything that's out there. Um, I try to always be on input when I'm listening to music. So this is a thing I've been thinking about a lot over the course of the pandemic. I've gotten to listen to maybe more music, you know, over the last year and change than I have in the previous five years combined. You know, just, just late at night after the family goes to bed, you know, I'm just... I'm making myself a cocktail and I'm getting the earphones out and I'm just dissolving into the world of music, um, which is just more fun to be in right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so when I do that, you know, I mean, I think that I think it's tempting sometimes to have to be medicating yourself with music uh, or 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 programming kind of the soundtrack of your life with music. And so I'm doing this thing makes me feel a certain way, makes me want to listen to a certain kind of thing. And I, I mean, I totally, I completely respect that kind of listening. I think that's one of music's many, you know, one of the, one of the many things that it can do. But I am really enjoying what happens when I just kind of sit down and go, music, take me, just take me wherever, where are we going to go? Let's go. Let's just go. And, um, and see how that feel it's still a two-way street because, you know, there's a little bit of, with music, there's a little bit of the, if a tree falls in the woods, no one's around to hear it doesn't make a sound like is a, a piece of music is not done until you specifically hear it it is an amorphous mercurial thing until it hits your ears and so whenever you hear a piece of music you are collaborating on that piece of music with whoever wrote it mm -hmm. and the better i get at cultivating that kind of a relationship with the music i hear the more seamless my transition from being a music lover to being a music maker can be. Mm -hmm. So I can go then into the writing room and just keep collaborating with all of the music that I've heard. Mm -hmm. So if I'm sitting there listening to it with, as an active participant, I, you know, feeling, feeling like I'm co-writing this music, like there's that, there's the aspect of it where you're totally subjecting yourself as you always should in a collaboration situation. 
Um, like, let's go on a ride. Don't come in there with an agenda. Like say, the same with romantic relationships. Um, you really have to engage with that person. Uh, meet them where they meet are. Meet them where they are and not where you think that they are. Not where you want them to right, be. Where, yeah, exactly. So music is the same way. And so when I'm in the writing room, I just try, I try not to separate that mindset. Like, okay, now I'm going to do it. Mm. It's just like, no, now we're going to keep doing it. And those are instincts that you formed of your whole life. Yeah, yeah. You talk about listening to music and being on full input mode. And I wonder, you know, when you are on stage, I'm sure you feel transported, uh, whether you're in front of three people in a living room or... 5,000 screaming fans at an outdoor festival. Mm. I wonder when you are on stage, when you are transported, can you talk about some of the places you go? Ooh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so like that song, um, well, the big long thing that I did in the, in the middle of the set, uh, Salt and the Wounds of the Earth, for instance, when I'm playing that, I have all of these weird... I almost feel like I'm in, uh, this reference just popped into my head because I just, we just bought my little boy a copy of Dinotopia. Those, and the illustrations are just as magical as I remember them being, if not more so. Uh, I'm in a way, it doesn't, I'm not saying that there are dinosaurs going on while I'm singing. Yeah, I mean, but there's not, not dinosaurs. But, uh, the, but there's Let's not, be real. not dinosaurs. <laughs> dinosaurs of, are awesome. Uh, no, that, but it's like, it's a, this world that I get into where I'm imagining myself in sort of a fantasy version of this world with these beings that may or may not have my best interests or the best interests of the people around me that I'm directly impacting by my capacity to feel uh, superior, uh, which is what that, that, that song is, is about. You know, for me, I think it's about how uh, these demons are using our desire to be good or to be good people. They're turning that on its ear, making us feel better about ourselves by saying that person is bad. So I am a good person and that, the way I know that is because I'm better than that person. Um, I feel like that, they're, so they're taking that purest, that instinct to be good and trying to show us people that we can just feel better than, which I feel is such a corrupting force. And that's all happening in this kind of like swirling uh, kind of, uh, yeah, the, the details are foggy. And yeah. it's, it's just, yeah, it, was, it looks like those illustrations from Dinotopia. <laughs> <laughs> Demons are a recurring theme tonight. Yeah. Have yes. they been a recurring theme for a long time? Yeah, yeah, with, with, the, with how big a part fundamentalist Christianity uh, played in my, in my rearing. All kinds of religious imagery, it's a constant thing. Uh, especially, there's so, one of the great things about organized religion is singing with people. Um, just singing with strangers. Yeah, you're talking relatives. about communion and yeah. communion, repetition. And, communion, absolutely. Yeah. Communion is, is, the, is the very, that's the thing I miss the most about being uh, you know, a, an active participant in organized religion, uh, is singing with people and coming together over something that is not you, you know, or that is, that's not them either, that's not any of the people in that room. 
I think that is really, really powerful and something that I'm, I'm going to try, actively try to be a, a part of, you know, having had this forced break from anything remotely akin to that, you know, that now um, when we do these things together, when we get into a concert room together over some music, that that, that uniquely beautiful part of human beings that, that wants to make or find a, a beautiful thing and, and share it with someone else. I wanna go to concerts feeling that way, like here's a thing that we're all gonna do together or go to a museum that way or go to a coffee shop that way. Anywhere where people are, have found or made or are just sharing a beautiful thing, I wanna go there and celebrate that spirit with those people. Obviously, we all know the mandolin is your bay. Uh, my bay. It's your bay. I wonder if you ever feel constrained by the mandolin, oh. or is it perfect? No, you know, my relationship to it is actually, it's like my speaking voice. And I don't, I'm not particularly fond of my speaking voice, but it gets the job done, you know? Mm. And that's how, that's exactly how I feel about the mandolin. It's just my voice. And there are things about it I don't love, just like with my speaking voice, it's a little reedy. It's a little reedy. And, and with the mandolin, you know, I envy keyboard instruments a great deal. The lyricism possible on a cello or a violin, you know, just like I envy James Earl Jones's voice. You know? um, so, I do think it's like, it's a, an appendage mm. at this point. It's like, it's like, I don't, I feel like I know a lot about what it does, how to best cast it in the most flattering light. Like activate and, it. And kind of like try and sweep the things that it's not as, the, the musical things that it's not as good at presenting, like try to sweep them under the rug um, and like highlight, oh, look at this shiny, sparkly, tinkly <laughs> thing that we're. Yeah, the <laughs> things that make us. I found myself at some points when you would do really quick work, just shaking my head no. Like, no, that's, that's too much for my brain. I don't understand it. Do you remember, like, the first time you had a mandolin in your hands? Yeah. Tell me about it. I was, I was five, and my parents had gone over to friends' houses, and this guy had a mandolin hanging up on his wall, like a little... It was called, it's called a Delta. They still have it. A Delta mandolin, you know, cheap, probably from a Sears catalog kind of Functional. Thing, but barely. <laughs> and I freaked out, though, because I had been seeing this guy play a mandolin at a pizza place in Carlsbad, California, and had kind of idolized it. He was a very charismatic fellow, and he played the mandolin, and so I would always pretend to be playing the mandolin. Like a tennis racket would be my mandolin. My parents had this ukulele, just inexplicably without strings, that would also be in there. I was probably lucky, right? So I didn't actually get locked <laughs> Although we could the... be here talking about the first time you played right, ukulele. Right. Uh, but, but so I, I freaked out, and the guy got it down, and I sat there the rest of the evening with that just on my lap, just kind of like strumming it. 
uh, open, you know, not fingering it, just strumming the thing. My parents were probably in heaven. You know, I, now that I, I have a five-year-old boy, the idea that something, that he would sit there with something for like a couple hours, <laughs> just like petting it. I was, was like it, petting it. Was it the sound? Was it the combination of the guy who was so intriguing? Was it, what was it? Yeah, it was, I know for sure that I was pretending to be that guy, but also the sound, absolutely. The sound. Um, I do, I do love high-pitched things. <laughs> do you think that since it was the combination of that high pitch and just the sound of it, the singular sound of the mandolin and this guy's vibe, yeah. do you think about that when you interact with young people or people in general who are interested in the, in the mandolin and you're the guy now? At that when I have those kinds of experiences where I can sense that um, a young person has is looking up to me in that way. That's, that's just everything. That's a moment. That's such an un, I feel like that's one of the least conflicted moments I ever have in my life about anything, you know, like this, this, at least this is good. This, I know this is good right here. What's happening right now. The Bach is okay. And, and <laughs> but you in, in talking to this kid just about being, his able, being able to, to share music with a young person is because I, I remember, you know, my world just switches on with music. That's, that's my earliest memories are of hearing, hearing music far, you know, far before I got to sit down with that mandolin. And, and I would meet these people like John Moore who would take me seriously as a being, as a human, you know, not just like a little kid, but, oh, this person likes music. I can help them on their way. Uh, like that got, I, I, I got to do that with Sarah Jarose a little bit. She was, you know, not, not that much younger than me, but, but fairly. She approached you and she's like, I hope we jam sometime. Yeah, exactly. She was like 12 or 13, I think, maybe 12. And she came through an autograph line, a Nickel Creek autograph line, asked, asked if I would jam with her sometime. And, you know, you, I don't know. She's just this little, <laughs> yeah, she's a little sure. girl in the autograph line. I'm like, yeah, totally. Let's do it. <laughs> and then, you know, a couple of years later, there she was backstage at Rocky Grass with her mandolin and started hearing her play. And she was like, do you want to play Red Haired Boy? And I, I most certainly do. <laughs> I most certainly do. And you find these, you, there are these kids that will come. There's this kid, Louis Phipps, uh, up in the Boston area, I think, who's, he's eight or nine. And just, he's a songwriter. So he's not like a, he's not, uh, He's not as much of an instrumentalist, which are generally the kids that I've gotten to interact with have been players first. And then the, the singing and the songwriting kind of develops over time. Sarah, Sarah was writing fairly young, but even at, at first she it was like a mandolin connection. This guy, this kid Louie is, is just writing these beautiful songs like about a raccoon that is leaving stuff in his driveway and um, just these amazing songs with really interesting structures. And, and so to get to talk to him about songwriting at this point is, it's just, it is, Carol, that is, that is the best. It's the best. So this is my last question. I'm sorry I didn't get to more of our uh, live stream questions. I get completely sucked into what we were talking about. <laughs> But this all being said, this whole mandolin thing is, I think it's fair to say that it really worked out for you. Uh, and it's going to continue to work out for you. And so that being said, considering um, how full of purpose you feel when you talk to kids, 
if you could, if you could go back in time and talk to yourself hmm. as a five-year-old strumming that mandolin in your lap, right. what would you say? Oh, I, ah, uh, one, I would say, hey, also learn the piano. Um, I would say that my parents actually were like, hey, don't you want to try and play the piano too? And I was like, no. I would go, I would be, yeah, I'd be like that guy coming to the time machine. No, play the effing piano, dude. On you, look. I, I can't. I got nothing. I want to so bad. Like tinkering away at the two-part inventions right now on the yeah. piano, just trying to get it. But it's just, it's just, and, the whole, I, the and I would also tell keys. that little dude, I would tell him to learn another language besides English that would be the other that would be the next thing and then after that it would just be just always remember that you can learn something from everyone that you meet there is not one person you meet that you should feel anything other than in awe of that's that's a thing that I would tell that that little boy he was a cocky little son of a <laughs> <laughs> it came around but uh but yeah now that I, I i think it would be those those three things when we get back you know it was a five-year experience and um it feels really lovely to have the opportunity to just be a musician again chris Thiele and i catch up again and talk about life after live from here i'm kyone wolf this is audacious stay with me This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. You may know Chris Thiele, previously the host of Live From Here and the lead singer of the band Punch Brothers, among about a thousand other brilliant musical projects. You just heard a conversation we had live at Jorgensen Center for the Performing Arts at Yukon Stores last month, but like a lot of live performances, it was too short. So we caught up again via Zoom. One thing I kept thinking about between these two interviews was in what ways does playing this often super emotional music affect him? I told him that the first time I heard his voice was thanks to my dear friend, Jonathan. It was back in 2011, and we were talking about the concept of the dropped stitch. In some cultures, while weaving a rug, for example, people will intentionally drop a stitch because only God could make something perfect. Then Jonathan and I were talking about how that may apply to music, and I thought, ah, there's so often one song in an album that just sucks. And thinking of it as a dropped stitch makes it a little easier to tolerate that song's existence within the context of the album. So I asked her, what's an album you think doesn't have a dropped stitch? And she answered without hesitation, Anti-Fogmatic by Punch Brothers. Now, I gave it a listen, and she was totally right. It's a compelling album, and... Even though Chris's voice and writing and playing are mesmerizing, what made me want to listen to every sound wave that that band ever produced was a very specific 35-second moment in that album. There's a song called Missy. It's a beautiful song full of desire and anger and jealousy and honor. And the, the part of the song that made my stomach drop, the sound that made me suddenly vividly access what it felt like all the times I felt those emotions in myself was this violin solo by Gabe Witcher. 
I'm going to start the song for you here, just a little bit leading into that solo. I could only listen to that so many times because my heart. And Chris, as the singer and writer of so many of these songs, well, he must feel it too, right? So I wanted to know, are there any songs that he has to, like, be careful playing or not play too often because it just hurts too much? No, unless they're bad. That hurts (laughs) me too much. You know, unless I come to a point where where I feel like they're bad um, because I can't if the song is so emotionally resonant that it causes me pain that is going to come with like a pretty serious dollop of pride of having you know figured out how to you know make that happen you know which can be which can actually be a an obstacle in in getting back in character you know if you're feeling good about yourself or having written something emotionally resonant you might it might be a little harder for you to get into that into that sort of despairing place that's gonna help drive it home uh but no no i've never i've never it's just too exciting when you know the the pain that maybe i don't know catalyzes the the lyric the desire to do it obviously that's that's painful and there's not necessarily any two ways about it uh, other than there is like a weird thing that you uh artists often write the best when they're unhappy but then we get really happy when we write our best so that we can't write well and then we get unhappy so then we can write again but then we get happy so then we can't write but then we get unhappy so we write yeah writing a happy song is that's, <laughs> to me that's the hardest you know, like you when I'm happy, happy, I don't no. feel compelled necessarily to write a poem about it or a song about it. Right. I hear well, you. I mean, I hear even you. talking instrumental instrumental music is good for that. Absolutely. One theme in songwriting in general is desire. It's mm. you know longing for the thing you can't yet have or can't ever have. And you've of course written songs about people in your life that you've desired. And so I wonder, do you know if anyone has written a song about you? <laughs> <laughs> I do not. I don't know. I would love to know. There's I mean, if it's a good, if it's like I want Chris. You know? Wow. Not like I I don't want Chris. That would be a terrible song. Right. Right. Well, I mean, there could. I mean, either one. If there's just any songs about God, wouldn't you? I'd be so curious. I'm always curious to know if people <laughs> that I write songs. You know, if there's ever a kernel of. Um, they, they, often there's. For me, I I really follow that the old Irish adage of of uh, never letting the truth get in the way of a good story. Um, so there's only ever semi biographical or autobiographical things going on. I don't think I've ever, you know, really. Well, no, that's not true. Every now and then, I've I've gone straight biography. There's a lot of specific names in these songs. Oh yeah, but the names are never the real names. 
Got you. That's what, have you have you heard from somebody who knew like ah, I heard your song about me. Yeah, that's early on. The earlier though, I think before I got quite so. Um, I mean, my wife can always tell when I'm writing about our relationship. But again, I I think uh, earlier in my life I was a little bit more club footed with this kind of thing, and and I've got to say this certain thing about this certain person or about a certain thing get that it happened out. to me. Get it out, and I look back at those songs, and and they just they're pretty bald faced in that way. And I hear a lot of songs that are bald faced in that way, and I feel like their interest to me is predicated on how interested I am in the personal life of whoever is delivering those songs. And when I look back at some of the things that I've written, I can only imagine that it's only interested. It's only interesting if you're interested in me. Otherwise it's not really artistically that satisfying. So just because I I do feel that music's noblest aim is to help us tell the story of our lives, all of us of being alive. And when you get, when you get, I think sometimes hyper specificity can define the building blocks and give people, you know, really tactile, touchable building blocks with which to go in there and make the thing that they want to make. But when you get so specific that you're really just saying, this is the thing that happened to me, I think we take all the power out of our listeners' hands and rob them of music's transportive quality. You know, it's like, you know, you want to be able to put yourself into this vehicle of the song. And sometimes I feel like if you write too specifically about a thing that happened to you, then you're you're just sort of pushing everyone else away and saying, no, 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 this is about me. And I want you to listen to this thing that happened to me. And that can work sometimes. Uh, sometimes that can be great. And and if, you know, if, if you write compellingly about a thing that happened to you that is unique, that can be amazing. You know, I would look to someone like, I got that last Fiona Apple record. I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of very specific things that happened, and she's so good at telling us those stories about things that that I met. But also, she writes in such a way that you can plug yourself into them and and find a spot for you in that in those narratives. You know, to where to where I start to wonder, like, yeah, I, I suspect this and that happened to Fiona, and then she just took it into songwriting world and like wrote some other stuff. Yeah. People who are really good at this walk that line mm. of, you know, doing the thing and expressing yourself and this experience of this idea or this story, but also making sure that it's accessible. Or else, why are you doing it? And for how long can you do that? When we tell these stories to each other in bars with close friends, right? The joy is not in telling your friend the story. And there's there can be joy and there can be catharsis there. But the joy, at least for the friend, when, when things really get going is when that story catalyzes a conversation. It's like, ooh, I wonder what that person, what do you think that person was thinking? Well, I wonder if they were thinking this. What do you, like, what should I have done in that? Yeah. Like, what, what can I do about it? It's all that that's so exciting. And I feel like songs that are about specific events should live in that exciting spot of like the what if and the, you know, that, so that's, I think my instinct in, well, here's the thing that happened, but what could have happened? <laughs> and relating to each other as human beings on the planet Earth, trying to figure out what the hell's going on and yeah. how to best do this job of being a human. And that's, that's a lot to ask, but that is one way to connect. Right, right. Indeed. Not too long ago, you were a radio host yourself. 
True. Uh, and if it weren't for the pandemic, uh, you'd probably still be one. <laughs> I probably would. Uh, Prairie yeah. Home Companion was later renamed to Live From Here. And I wonder what that felt. I know you must have gotten this question, but how much were you excited to take on that role? Mm. And how much were you like, what am I doing? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, there's certainly a little give and take there. But mostly, mostly it was it was exciting um, just because I, I get so mostly exciting because I get so excited about things that hit my ears in a certain way. And I want to show I've always I've always wanted to sit people down and show them, you know, this or that thing that I that I heard. So it felt like a, an opportunity to do that professionally instead, <laughs> you know, instead of just sort of. Uh, as an as an amateur after shows and in the bus or whatever over cocktails, that felt really amazing to do that. It was stressful on 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 occasion getting you know. Bro, two I hours. have a weekly show and it's yeah. just all pre like I don't have the moving parts you have, and this is a very work heavy, multifaceted job. I right. I I imagine you had a great team, incredible team, a absolutely amazing team that was so experienced and but also not letting their experience get in the way of new stuff we could do together just just allowing their experience they always used it as a trampoline for new ideas which was amazing i was worried about that i was worried that it would be hard to do something new with it but at the same time i only heard a specific thing in my head and i've never been able to happily make something that is in direct opposition to what I hear in my head. Sometimes I can, you know, as other ideas come in, they can augment that or like my idea is yellow and the ideas being presented to me are blue. And so what we get is green. But I knew I knew it was either going to be something like what I heard in my head or just not happen, you know, just have to stop doing it. So in that regard, it was really just knuckling down and doing the work. I didn't feel anxiety about whether or not we'd have a show at the end of it, you know, because because you I could hear it. And that's one of the reasons I said yes. But also in the wake of it, you know, it was a five year experience, all told, five, six year experience. And um, it feels really lovely to have the opportunity to just be a musician again, yeah, um, play. to play and write and use the lessons that I learned hosting the radio show. The thing I really want to hold on to with all my might is how much I love being a listener and to to listen, not just to improve. I, I you know, we, we talk about improving books. I listen in that way a lot of the time. That so, Sometimes my, my go-to might be, what will I listen to today that will improve me as a musician? And one thing I remembered how to do during the radio show is is listen for pure enjoyment edification just do i like this or do i not like this do i am i getting goosebumps goosebumps or no goosebumps um, <laughs> right <laughs> you know that that kind of being the ultimate like binary evaluation of a given piece of music is goosebumps or no goosebumps yeah gabe witcher's violin solo and missy goosebumps, goosebumps yes absolutely Check. well you know that solo you know, the solo was improvised on that, that, that you bring up the, the Missy 
solo was an improvised solo that he then that became canon that was so he always played then he would always play that solo or some sort of lightly varied version of that of that improvised solo live because it just became as important as the melody to us after the break of all the musicians who've crossed his path whose performance made chris thiele almost utterly speechless the confidence and presence the clarity with which she's performing what she's performing i just i was deeply starstruck i'm kyone wolf find out on audacious be right back This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, a conversation with Chris Thiele. You may know him as the lead singer of the band Punch Brothers or as the host of Live From Here, his public radio show, which ran from 2016 to last year. In the last segment, we were talking about how he shifted into that show, which originally was Garrison Keillor's A Prairie Home Companion. I wanted to know, after a lifetime of sharing the stage with some of the best musicians in the world, when he was hosting that show, was there anybody who made him utterly starstruck? I I think probably Mavis Staples. And I wasn't planning on being starstruck by Mavis Staples. It was actually the reality of Mavis Staples is what I became starstruck by. It was, I love Mavis Staples, was so psyched to have her on the show. But after she did her first song, then I was starstruck. Because that's the real... Um, that was in, insane what she was able to do. I've never heard someone talk about command of the facilities that you have. You know, I, I, I suppose it just at the, the stage that she's in in her career, the confidence and presence, the clarity with which she's performing, what she's performing, I just, I was deeply starstruck by where she was coming from. And yeah, the gusto with which she was delivering what she had inside of her. Singular. Yeah. Big time. Got a change around here. Got a change around here. Can't go on this way. Things got to change around here. Say it loud. Say it clear. Things got to change around here. We are almost out of time, and I want to be respectful. So we got we to gotta talk about Lay songs. It's out June 4th. Congratulations. And Thank I know you've you. been through this process before. You've, you've, you've let plenty of albums out into the world. You've, right. I don't know if you, if you see it like a version of giving birth. Having seen your wife give birth, I'm sure you realize it's not at all like that. But nope. um, how? <laughs> no. How does this one feel different? to get out into the world. I know it's a solo album and, and that's that's different, but how does this feel different? There's this weird dichotomy present on the record, which is that it's so, it is so solo. I mean, it is actually solo in a way that that I've, I've only done once before. And even then it was, it was very different because I was playing Bach the whole time. So in a way that's a duo record. Um, you know, I mean, I, I would never pretend that it's actually a duo record, but you're, you know, only playing someone else's music is, is quite different than than when you're playing 
your own music and then curating you know a few kind of choice bits of music from another perspective in the to kind of contextualize and banter with with ideas that you have on a, on a topic it just this feels this time it's personal this time it's personal it's very personal but at the same time it's it's a record about community which felt you know again like like knowing that i was going to be doing this solo and wanting there to be a reason to develop produce and release a solo record besides coronavirus <laughs> uh, you know that's not a good enough reason that's a fine reason for right now but in the grand scheme of things that's not a good reason to make a solo record so i got real deep into the kind of thoughts i would have like as, as an adolescent sitting in a church service i was raised in a very structured religious environment and th- this record is a meditation on community and then our tendencies towards isolation even within the community either isolating ourselves like isolating our most precious or feared thoughts from the people that might help us celebrate/deal with those precious and feared thoughts and then our tendencies to pod up those communities to isolate those communities from the rest of human kind like we are these kind of people and we hang out together and i think through the pandemic being deprived of those beloved communities that we participate in has caused me to realize how little advantage i have taken of being a part of those communities and then how small i have been a part of encouraging those communities to be how closed how exclusionary we we get i think left to our own devices i think maybe if there's a silver lining to the pandemic it is how much more will we appreciate any human contact and the ability to see outside of ourselves the ability to experience to feel outside of ourselves i think may have the result of sort of blowing the doors off of our very closed communities um so i think of the way that a church functions like the there the so the the record lay songs the idea you know kind of a riff on laymen you know the people in a church who are not actually delivering the church service it's sort of like pottering about trying to feel something you know uh, <laughs> like and, all of us yes so yeah so lay songs being sort of <laughs> kind of spiritual but they're still coming from a secular place it's a meditation on community the good and the bad parts of it and and how how can we how can we turn this thing when you're in the center of community when you're in the middle of active community there it's impossible to feel anything but great about it like it just feels so good to be with with our fellow human beings that divorced of that opportunity the way that I'm divorced of you know for instance my fellow punch brothers or fellow members of nickel creek um you can take a look at what some aspects of that that may benefit from a little constructive criticism <laughs> you know and especially as we look at this world around us and realize the ways in which we have shut off certain kinds of people to certain activities that we enjoy or that we hold the dearest i think it's an opportunity for us to look at our communities and see how we can be more open.
Yeah. So Chris, uh, as we close the show out, I figure that I can ask you which song from Lay Songs do you think would be the most appropriate to use as we go out? Ooh. Considering all we talked about. Considering all we talked about, I think probably Lay Song. It's one of those, you, you'll, you'll appreciate the, you know, it sprawls. It, <laughs> it sprawls <laughs> and it's, it's about coming together, but over what now? We're champing at the bit to gather and over what will we gather, I think is the crucial question. Um, and with whom? With whom? Hopefully with everything, with everybody, over everything. I would love for us to be able to gather together like that. Me too. Chris Thiele, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Kion. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Tolarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Special thanks to Renee Fournier and Rodney Rock at Jorgensen Center for the Performing Arts for inviting me to talk with Chris on stage. To subscribe to this show and listen back to episodes featuring things like what a perfect fluid sounds like, what an eight-year-old with a stutter hopes people learn from him, what happens when you call the number on the bottom of those I Love You Jesus billboards, what accents an accent master will not do, and why a sculpturist, dubbed the eighth wonder of the world, whose client list includes the Queen of England, will never feel satisfied with the tininess of his art, visit ctpublic.org audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, and my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org, and online use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. With no plan